Here's a question for you this morning. What causes you the greatest fear? According to Wall Street's fear index, extreme fear is driving the market in the wake of COVID-19. But it's not just COVID. It's the state of the world with Russia invading Ukraine. So literally everyone's checking the news 24-7 for their next jolt of insecurity and fear. But the question is, what are you most afraid of? Many are terrified we're on the brink of war. Some are afraid of declining health. Others are afraid of losing their job and their ability to provide for their families, or worse, losing their own personal freedoms. But whatever you fear most tells you what you worship the most. So the first test of whether we're actually worshiping the right God, the God of the Bible, is actually fear. Michael Horton says, while being afraid of all sorts of things is a sign of sanity these days, the fear of God seems quite insane, not only to unbelieving neighbors, but even to the church. So it's not surprising that the God of the Bible is increasingly rejected in wider American society, since even in evangelical circles, he is frequently reduced to a supporting actor in our life movie a means to an end for our own health and wealth and happiness. He says in ordinary conversations, we express fear of just about any threat to our well-being, but meet stares and raised eyebrows if we even mention the idea of fearing God. Now just think about that. We worship most what we fear most. So for some, the fear of COVID-19 dominates them. Now, of course, they don't worship a virus, but maybe they're worshiping their health. Others are terrified of war. Now, they don't worship violence, but maybe they're worshiping safety, security, and comfort. And certainly the freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with their own time, money, and resources. And if God can help with that, great. But if he can't, then we really have no need of him. Therefore, Horton says, for many, Jesus has become little more than a mascot for our own personal wants and desires, rather than the mediator apart from whom we must face God as an all-consuming fire. So again, what are you most afraid of? And are you certain that it's the right thing? Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So God's whom we must fear the most because God's whom we must worship the most. And he's certainly worthy of our worship. So we have much to learn this morning, but we're in the perfect text to do it. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is on page 51. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, as you're turning... Let me put our passage in context. As you know, we've entered the second half of the book of Exodus, so God's already demonstrated that he's God and that he's a God who saves. That's Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Exodus 15, verse 21. And now he's brought Israel into the wilderness to teach them to be a people who trust God's provision, obey God's law, and dwell in God's presence, which takes us all the way and will take us all the way to the end of the book of Exodus. So in the last few weeks, if you remember, it's been grumbling, 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 not trusting God. But this morning, it will become immediately clear that God's desire is also to have a people for himself who joyfully obey God's law. But before he gives them that law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, there's this prelude in Exodus 19. 
so that people might understand, if you look at your bulletin, number one, God's desire, number two, God's preparation, and number three, God's presence. So follow along as I read Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped, notice, before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, the first thing that you need to grab a hold of is that Moses is the mediator. So he's constantly running up and down the mountain, right? Speaking to God, then speaking to the people. Speaking to God, then speaking to the people. So he goes up and down the mountain in this chapter at least three times. Why does he do that? Well, because Moses is the mediator between God and man. That's his role. We're going to see that over and over and over again. Also, verse 1 gives us the timing. It's the third new moon after the people have gone out from Egypt. So it's been about three months since their exodus. And where exactly are they? Well, they're at Mount Sinai. Now, is that just some random destination? No, that's A, the fulfillment of God's promise. Because if you remember all the way back in Exodus 3, that's exactly what God promised. If you would, go ahead and flip back to Exodus 3. Look at verse 1 for just a moment and keep your hand in Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. You're like, yep, that's not Sinai. Horeb, the mountain of God. Well, it's helpful for you to know that Horeb is Sinai. So this mountain, Mount Horeb, is Mount Sinai, which is where God appears to Moses in the burning bush, which he declares to be holy ground. That's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. Why is it holy ground? Because he's a holy God. And God promises Moses at this burning bush, look at verse 10, that he will send Moses to Pharaoh so Moses might bring God's people out of Egypt. Verse 11, but Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? How does God respond? He says, verse 12, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Which mountain? This mountain. Mount Sinai, which is exactly where the people are right now, Exodus 19. So flip back to Exodus 19. They're at Mount Sinai. So again, God's faithfulness to his promise. I mean, just the fact that they're here at Mount Sinai and all that has taken place is a sign of God's faithfulness but it's also a sign of God's desire that they would be his people, that they would be near to him in his holy presence in order to worship his holy name as God's treasured possession. That's B, the declaration of God's desire. Look at verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the nearness of God being there good. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God declares three things, what he accomplished, what he requires, and what he promises. Number one, what the Lord accomplished. But we already know this. 
Don't we? That he judged Egypt, destroyed them through the first nine plagues, killed the firstborn in the tenth, and then drowned the entire army in the Red Sea. We know all of that. Why does he reiterate it? Well, notice how he describes it. Verse four, he says, I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, we all know the eagle is a bird of prey, right? It attacks its enemies, just like God attacked Egypt. But the eagle is also a fierce provider and protector. So when its young are in trouble, it rescues them, just like God rescued Israel. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. It says, in a desert land, the Lord found Israel in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them and cared for them and kept them as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young and spreads out its wings, catching them and burying them in its pinions. What a glorious description of what God accomplished. He judged Egypt and he rescued Israel so that they could be near him. I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he brought them out so that they could be near him, so that they could worship him on this particular mountain. So God wants his people to be near him. That's incredible, isn't it? that the nearness of this God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, could actually be their God. I mean, stop and think about what an incredible privilege that is, that the God of the universe can be your God. And that the nearness of the God of the universe can be your good. That's incredible. But being in God's presence is not a minor thing. So there are requirements that must be met in order to draw near to this God. And the first of those requirements is covenant faithfulness. So after the Lord rehearses what he's done, he lays out exactly what he expects. Number two, what the Lord requires. Verse five says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, with great privilege comes great responsibility. Well, this must be the absolute greatest example of that statement. Because it's such a great privilege to be God's treasured possession. A treasured possession is the one thing in your life that you value more than anything else. So God's saying that his people are the one thing in the world, which by the way, he mentions that he owns the whole world. So his people are the one thing in the whole world that he values above all other things. What a great privilege. Not just the treasured possession, we're also a kingdom of priests, which is actually getting after the fact that Israel as a nation was to have a priestly role in bringing God's blessing to the world. So they were called to be a light to the nations, the ones through whom God's salvation shone to a dark and dying world. Again, what a privilege. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So the great privilege of not being like all the other pagan nations that were wrong and wicked and evil. Instead, they would be set apart. They would be unique and distinct. How would they be unique and distinct? By being holy and righteous and good. Leviticus 19.2, God says, You shall be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. So being holy because you worship a holy God. Again, what a privilege. But none of those privileges come without obedience. Or more precisely, without covenant faithfulness. So God demands obedience. In fact, he re- it's required in order to be his treasured people. Notice the if in verse 5. This is a pretty big If, 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and if you will keep my covenant, then and only then you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you keep God's commands, then you get God's promises, which also means that if you don't keep God's commands, then you don't get God's promises. So what does that mean? It means obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, which God is about to give them, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, is not optional. God's demanding a faithful covenant partner. Now, this should not be a surprise to us at all, because this is exactly what God did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They were the crown jewel of creation, placed as vice rulers over the earth. They were the apple of God's eye, walked with God in the cool of the day with unhindered fellowship and were called to be God's blessing to the world. But what did God require them to keep in order to be his treasured people in that treasured position? Obedience. He expected a faithful covenant partner, and he gave them, right? right? We're going to get 10 commandments. Adam and Eve only got one. They only had one commandment that they needed to keep, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. What did they do? They disobeyed. They showed themselves to not be a faithful covenant partner. And as a result, the nearness of God was not their good. They were cast out of God's presence immediately. So don't you see, Israel is the new Adam. Israel is the new son called out of Egypt to be near God, to worship God, to mediate God's blessing of salvation to the world. But that requires obedience. So God demands a faithful covenant partner. And Israel, at this point in time, is more than willing to do it. That's C, the commitment of God's people. Look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the people are promising to be faithful. Now, if you know the book of Exodus, this is a little painful, isn't it? Because we don't have to look too far back to remember Israel grumbling in the wilderness. So just three days out from God's glorious deliverance, right? Salvation in the midst of judgment brought, brought through the Red Sea. What were they doing? Three days, three days. They're grumbling for water, grumbling for food, grumbling for meat, grumbling for God's presence. I mean, the whole nation is just one-stop grumbling machine. That's who they are. But somehow they say all that the Lord has commanded we will do. Okay. We'll see how this goes. At least they recognize all that God has done and they want to do what God calls them to do. So the desire is good. They want to be God's faithful covenant partner. So number one, God's desire. Now number two, God's preparation. Because in order to be a faithful covenant partner, they're going to need to dwell in God's presence, which requires preparation. So follow along as I read verses 9 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. 
but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up, notice, to the mountain, so not onto the mountain, but to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, day, do not go near a woman. First thing you need to notice, again, Moses is the mediator. So he keeps running up and down the mountain, speaking to God, speaking to people, speaking to God, speaking to the people. Why is that? Because God is the mediator between God and man. But also, A, that God promises his presence, which is a massive deal. Look at verse 9. God says, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. Verse 11, he says, be ready on the third day, for I will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So this is God revealing himself to all the people, which is huge. If the President of the United States was promising his presence in this church, that would be a big deal. That would require lots of preparation. Do you remember when Barack Obama came? Like They shut down all of I-91. I, I couldn't get out of my driveway in Windsor, Connecticut, right? Because he's going to be in the state someplace. If the President of the United States came, that would require lots of preparation. But this is God we're talking about. Revealing himself to all the people. But even though he promises to reveal himself, he doesn't promise to reveal all of himself. That's why he's coming down in a thick cloud. So he's revealing himself, and yet he's shrouding himself. Now, why would he do that? Well, so that the people don't die. Sinful men cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and live. I mean, just think about Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah entered the throne room of God, verse 3 says the seraphim were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Verse 4 says the foundations of the thresholds shook and the whole house was filled with what? With smoke. Why? Because sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and live. That's why Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So he's crystal clear on at least three things, right? That God is holy, that he is not, and that he deserves to die. That's why atonement is made. So in Exodus 19, God not only promises his presence, he also be warns of his penalty. That's why he sets up a boundary around the mountain. Verse 12, God says, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, care not to go up into the mountain or even touch the edge of the mountain, for whoever touches the mountain will surely die. Now make the connection. When God descends on the mountain... That's when the mountain becomes holy. So God's presence makes God's mountain holy. Otherwise, it's just a mountain. Just like God's presence made the burning bush holy. That's why God told Moses to remove his shoes, because he's standing on holy ground, because God's presence is there and God is holy, therefore the ground is holy. God's presence makes God's places holy holy. So God warns them, if anyone touches the mountain, even accidentally, they will surely die. You know, a great example of this was Uzzah and the ark. If you know that story from 2 Samuel 6, the Israelites just defeated the Philistines. So they were bringing the ark home, right? After the victory, they're taking the ark home to Jerusalem when suddenly the ox pulling the cart with the ark on it stumbles. Wagon tips a little bit and the ark slides. 
So Uzzah puts out his hand in order to catch the ark. And as soon as he touches the ark, meaning he touches the presence of God, Uzzah immediately dies. God's presence makes God's places holy. And therefore, whoever touches them, even accidentally, will surely die. God promises his presence. God warns of his penalty. And now see, God instructs his people. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So the people are called and commanded to consecrate themselves, which means they're commanded to be set apart, to be made holy so that they can dwell in God's presence. Consecrated themselves in two ways. Number one, by washing their garments. Number two, by abstaining from sexual relations. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world would they consecrate themselves in these specific ways and not in other ways? Well, because both of these things are actually pointing to something far more significant than just the external physical thing. Clean garments are a metaphor for the need to have a clean heart. Just like David says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So the physical cleansing language is used to help us understand, not that they need to have clean clothes, but they need a clean heart before a holy God. Number two, they must also abstain from sexual relations. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with sexual relations in the context of marriage. That's all part of God's good and perfect design. So then what is going on here? Well, John Calvin says, although there is nothing contaminated in the marriage bed, yet the Israelites were to be reminded that all earthly cares as much as possible were to be renounced so that they might give their entire attention, their whole focus to the hearing of God's law. So now put them together, right? Clean clothes and abstinence for three days. All so that they could have holiness in the forefront of their minds, that God is holy and he absolutely requires perfection, righteousness, and holiness just to be in his presence. Three days to realize at a greater level that being in God's presence is not to be entered lightly, but reverently, discreetly, and soberly. Because God is God. And God is holy. And therefore, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's desire, God's preparation. Now number three, God's presence. Follow along as I read verses 16 to 25. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. Look at your Bible. It doesn't say thunder and lightning. It says thunders and lightnings. What is that? That's like a storm upon a storm upon a storm upon a storm. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And notice 
the whole mountain trembled greatly. So not only are the people trembling, but the mountain is trembling. The people and his creation are all trembling before the holiness of God. Verse 19, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now again, you have to notice Moses is the mediator. He keeps running up and down this mountain. You feel badly for him. He must be exhausted at this point in time, right? So he runs up, he's speaking to God, then he runs down and he's speaking to the people because Moses is the mediator. Including this last time, a God's reminding, verse 21, he says to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and many of them perish. Now, God's already given that warning back in verse 12, so why does he give it again? Well, look at the people God's dealing with. I mean, the Israelites have not been the most impressive group of learners, have they? Tested three times in the wilderness, and yet they still didn't get it, grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. So God just wants to make sure, which I think we should interpret as God's unbelievable compassion and care for his people. He just wants to make sure that the nearness of God is their good. And all of that because of B, God's descending. I mean, can you even imagine what this must have been like? What the Israelites experience at Mount Sinai must be considered one of the most awesome and yet terrifying displays of God's power that anyone has ever experienced. I mean, you get the laundry list of scary things here, don't you? And they're all piled on top of one another all at the same time, including lightning, lightnings, and thunder, thunders. Darkness and smoke and fire and the whole earth is shaking. So lightning tells us that it was bright and yet there's this cloud so thick that you can feel it as God descends and there's fire with smoke billowing up as from a hot forge. So God's revealing himself and yet at the same time he's shrouding himself. You see him but you can't quite see him clearly so there's a mystery to his majesty. And can you even imagine the volume? When things are so loud, it's terrifying. The thunder is rolling. The earth is shaking and the horn is blasting. And the volume, we're told, gets louder and louder and louder as God comes closer and closer and closer. Just picture yourself standing there. I hope you have goosebumps. What an absolutely awesome and yet incredibly terrifying experience. All of that happened as God descends. So it's completely understandable that these people are terrified and trembling. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever experienced the power of nature? Like that? Maybe you've had an eyewitness account where you've seen a tornado 
or maybe you've experienced an earthquake. I remember being in the middle of a 30-inch snowstorm up in Vermont, and I was out in the elements plowing all night long. So the snow was coming down so thick that I couldn't keep the windshield clear and the temperatures were, were dropping. They were getting colder and colder, so everything was frozen. And I remember getting the truck stuck. So I accidentally went off the end of my driveway with the plow up. And so when I dropped off the end of the driveway, my plow dropped into a packed snowbank. So there was absolutely no way out, right? I'm sitting there going forward and backward, and all that's happening are my tires spinning. And I remember getting so scared that I jumped out of the truck and started digging it out frantically, thinking to myself that if I can't get this truck out of the snowbank and for some reason the power goes out, my wife and kids are going to freeze to death because there's no way for me to get them out of here. It was absolutely terrifying. But that was the power of God in nature. This is the power of God in himself, in person. I want you to feel that. Because Mount Sinai must be one of the most awesome and yet one of the most terrifying displays of God's power ever experienced. But be clear, as we transition, it's all in preparation for God's law. God's commandments, the Mosaic covenant, right? Because Exodus 20 is right here. Exodus 20 verse 1 says, and God spoke all these words. What does that mean? It means he didn't give those words to Moses and Moses come down and deliver the Ten Commandments. No. In this context, God declares the Ten Commandments. With this smoke, this fire, this thunder and lightning, and this horn blasting, and this earth shaking, God speaks all these words, the Ten Commandments, to these people. And how does he start? He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God deeply desires a faithful covenant partner and demands a people who obey his voice and keep his commands. So where do we go from here? Well, for starters, we have to recognize that Israel is never going to get it, right? We do not want to put our confidence in Israel. Right? I mean, if you know Exodus at all, then you know that in less than 40 days, they're going to be worshiping a golden calf rather than this God, the God of the Bible. And the truth is, Moses isn't going to cut it either. He disobeys God to such an extent that he's not even welcomed into the promised land. So then where's our hope this morning? Well, our hope is in a new covenant and a greater mediator. So if you would, go ahead and flip forward to Hebrews chapter 12, page 1009, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Now, you need to know that if I could do whatever I wanted to do right now, I would read the entire book of Hebrews. (laughs) That's what I would do. Because it is awesome. So this is me exercising self-control to not make you flip all the way through Hebrews. So we're going to go one place, and we're going to grab one idea, and then we're going to use that as application for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You need to know that after the Ten Commandments were given, the people said, we don't want to talk to God anymore. Well, listen to Moses. Please don't talk to us directly. That's what's being referenced right there 
voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. This is clearly talking about Exodus 19. But we're in a very different place. Why is that? Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Here it is, verse 24, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. It cries out for our salvation. Therefore, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Exodus 19, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Verse 28, therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Now be clear. God is unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not that the God of the Old Testament is some sort of meanie bad guy. And the God of the New Testament is soft and cuddly, gracious and unoffendable. No. I don't want you to think that. I've heard that. Well, at least we don't have to deal with the God of the Old Testament. No, 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 no. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what has changed is that we have a new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ who is a greater mediator. And of course, we need a greater mediator. I mean, all you have to do is look at the requirements of God that he's commanded in the book of Exodus and ask yourself, who could ever pull that off? Who could ever be a faithful covenant partner who has a clean heart and is totally devoted to God in perfect holiness? Answer, only Jesus. Jesus stands in the place of Adam. Jesus stands in the place of Israel. And Jesus stands in the place of all those who put their faith in him. Because only Jesus perfectly fulfilled the old covenant, God's law, God's commandments. So he's the only one whose garments are totally clean. David says in Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's Jesus. He's the only one who obeyed God perfectly, which is why Jesus is the greater mediator. He doesn't have to deal with his own sin like Moses or the priests or all the other people who live in this world or us. Instead, through his sinless perfection and his death, burial, and resurrection, he's able to be the ultimate priest who mediates God's glorious blessing of salvation to anyone who will but believe in him. So what's the upshot? Well, the upshot is that we don't have to fall into the hands of the living God, described here in Hebrews 12, 29, as an all-consuming fire. But instead, because Jesus is our mediator, the nearness of God becomes our greatest good, that we might dwell in God's presence and worship God rightly with awe and reverence, so not standing absolutely terrified with fear and trembling of condemnation, but in joyful worship forever. So if you're here this morning 
and this is all brand new to you, then I hope, I pray, that this passage, Exodus 19, is absolutely terrifying to you. I pray that you don't sleep tonight. It should terrify you. If I have to deal with that God, I'm done. That's exactly right. If you got that this morning, then you heard me rightly. And I think you understand Exodus 19. If you have to deal with that God on your own means, your own means, you standing before that, you're done. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hence, Jesus says, do not fear those who killed the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You should be terrified so that you run to Jesus, who offers to be your mediator. He offers to stand in your place. He offers to take your sin upon himself. He offers to die the death that you deserve so that the nearness of God can be your good for all eternity. So that what you fear the most might become what you worship the most. The Lord Jesus is absolutely worthy of your worship this morning. So whatever fear is keeping you from coming to Christ, I pray that you'd see it's not worth it. The God of all creation invites you into his presence through his son, the one true mediator, so you might be saved from the wrath of God to come. I invite you to trust in Christ so that the nearness of God might be your good this morning. And for you, dear believer, let me ask again. What are you most afraid of? What causes you the greatest fear? Because whatever you fear most is what you'll worship most. So drawing near to God through faith in Christ is not simply a once and done kind of thing. It's a daily thing. You see, we live in a day and age where the transcendence of God is totally marginalized. So God is more user-friendly than he is holy and majestic. Well, that's not the God of the Bible, is it? So my guess is if you're anything like me, then you're viewing God far more comfortably than you ought to. We should rightly continue to tremble before the Almighty God, not because we're terrified of condemnation, but because He's awesome in power. He's majestic in beauty, and He is absolutely altogether holy. And as a result, He calls us to be holy. So out of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, our glorious mediator and awe and reverence for almighty God, we should be joyfully putting sin to death in our lives and walking in righteousness. I mean, do you understand the language of Exodus 19, 4 to 6? Because when Jesus is your mediator, then you are God's treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests, and you are a holy nation. But that's only true when Jesus is your mediator. Let that fill your heart with joy. I am God's treasured possession. He owns the whole earth. But he sets his affection on you. And he calls you. What does he want you to do with your life? Well, he wants a kingdom of priests. He wants people 
who joyfully declare, this is my God. I worship him. I'm not afraid of these other things, not because those things aren't scary, but because I worship him. I live for him. We are a kingdom of priests, beloved, and we are called to be a holy nation. Not just a nation. Not just the people who gather, who like to be together. Not just a country club. A holy nation. Set apart. Distinct. Because we walk in righteousness. We put sin to death. We love one another. We're willing to confront one another so that we might be growing in holiness. You shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Do you see how the mediator motivates our holiness? Because we are his treasured possession. We are a kingdom of priests. And by God's grace, through the gift of his spirit, he makes us to be a holy nation. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're asking that you would be doing that good work. We recognize this morning we need you to be doing that good work. Lord, I pray that there would be a growing awe and reverence for Almighty God in our congregation. Father, I pray that we would delight all the more that you sent your son to be a mediator, that he died in our place. He rose from the grave on the third day so that the nearness of God could be our good. And I pray that that would motivate us. I pray that, that out of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, we would joyfully put sin to death in our life and walk in righteousness. That we would be a holy nation, a holy group of people. That is the glory of the church. Father, we ask that you would be doing that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.